everyone in podcast listening land. I'm Karen Devaney. And I'm Ann Barner. And, and we're, we're sisters. Welcome to Sugarcoated Murder, where we'll discuss and probably inappropriately laugh about and comment on. Yep. One of our favorite subjects. Murder. murder. Oh, and we love to bake. And why not combine our two favorite subjects? Baking and killers. Hey, Ann Barner. Hey, Karen Devaney. What you doing? I am getting together a little baking surprise. Oh, that's so exciting. I love a surprise, and especially when it's baked. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to do um, almond pillow cookies. Oh. And I went on a search because um, I love the almond pillow cookies at Fresh Market. Girl, me too. They oh, my God. So I love good, them. so good, but we don't have a Fresh Market. No, we don't. So we need to learn how to make them. That's right. Or you do. Right. And then we, we will have them all the time because you will make them. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> how perfect. I found a recipe um, and we're going to see if it works out. I don't I know. Hope so. I've not tried it before. Well, I it can't be but so bad. If it's made with almond paste, it's got my name all exactly. over it. Exactly. I love a nice almond cookie, almond yeah. croissant. Yes, that's what I had for my breakfast this morning was oh. a little almond croissant. Well, you're very spoiled. I am very spoiled, but I I cooked it myself. So a little Trader Joe's. <laughs> I love me some Trader <laughs> Joe's. I, I, I actually use Trader Joe's a lot to buy my croissants, and then I maybe sometimes I pass them off as homemade because if they're baked in your oven, it was made at in home. In your home. Absolutely. <laughs> Could not agree with you that's more. That's the philosophy of our grandmother. Absolutely. Rest in peace, Grandma Seal. <laughs> and our other grandmother, me mama, because I, you know, she had those homemade biscuits. Turned out they were biscuits from the green can, which they don't do anymore. But mm -mm. green can biscuits. They do the the biscuit. It just doesn't come in a green can. No, it's so sad. Now it's flaky, flaky layers. Yeah, I know. But yeah, I know. It was green biscuits when we were growing up. We had green. And, and she, she used to make her own sausage gravy. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah. And then she had that yummy barbecue sauce. That you thought was her homemade, it, but it I was not. It came so. from S&N. I don't think so. Because or it was in a or, ketchup bottle. That's what they did. That's how they so. made, that's how they put it. That's what they did. I don't think so. Okay, whatever. She ain't done it. I can tell you right now, she never did that. But I anyway. She did. I can't remember anything that she actually made on her own except for the sausage and sausage gravy. <laughs> I'm not sure what else. And honestly, she... the sausage gravy was just a little bit of flour in with the, the dripping greetings from the sausage <laughs> that she cut. So it wasn't, it yeah. was, you know, overly but it was delicious. I'll never forget when I was in high school still and our cousin, I had been in our cousin Bonnie's wedding and I had, even though I was the ripe old age of 17 and had a full-blown case of mono at the time, um, I was in the wedding and I got a little over-served. I, I would rather say I over-served myself because there were pictures of me drinking straight from the champagne bottle at the reception, but... <laughs> Something happened, yada, yada, yada. I woke up on the bathroom floor covered in a blanket with no clothes on because I had puked all over mom and dad when they came in. Oh, and they had on their um, their evening clothes. So that morning, I remember me mama thought she'd really get me and teach me a lesson. And she was going to make um, sausage biscuits with gravy. And I, I, I ate three. <laughs> Oh, wow. And I woke up and I was like, God, it smells so good. She thought it was going to make me feel like really sick and nasty. I think I had purged everything the night before. Right. So that was the night that I came in. My quote unquote date who met his wife that night, by the way, oh. um, 
<laughs> his future wife. He wasn't married at the time. Let's just be clear. But he actually was clear, so embarrassed at the shape really that bad. I was in that he literally walked me up to the front porch, rang the doorbell, and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went in, and me mama was sleeping on the couch. I remember. And I had a full-blown conversation with her like I was straight, I was good to go, and I turned around and ran square into the door. Yeah, I was Because it was that. closed, yes. And then she said, you, you are, are a nut. nut. <laughs> and she, from that day forward, she would tell me I was a nut. She's, and you, you she'd say, you are the nuttiest one I've got. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and I'm, I think it was, there was some truth there. Yeah, but I think it was a term of endearment. Oh, definitely. I, I think really in some way she was a little proud. A little bit. I mean, maybe not that I had, like, completely wrecked our family re reputation in her hometown, but whatever. Listen. I never went I back to that steakhouse ever again after that. I think they asked you not to. I'm pretty sure they have a picture of me and said, do not let this person <laughs> enter. Yeah, because I grew up on a random come. person in the steakhouse. Yeah. And then my date took me downstairs and locked me in the car so I could sleep it off and went upstairs and then met his future wife. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Matchmaker, matchmaker. Right. Make me a they match. Definitely be thinking yeah, and they didn't somewhere. even ask me to be in their wedding. That's so tacky. I know. Ungrateful. That's what they I were. I don't know if maybe they felt like you were going to be a little unruly at the No, wedding. not me. <laughs> Maybe they felt like that tiny little South Hill, Virginia had had just oh, about just enough. Just about enough. Of, yeah, I know. I know. And so, yeah. And the funny thing is, about two months later, I still had mono. And my spleen was so inflamed from all the drinking I had right. been doing. And my liver. That's probably where I damaged my liver. It may very well be. That I, um, I ended, almost ended up in the hospital. Like, I was so sick. So, yay for me. But it was yeah. a great wedding. Great wedding. Beautiful. And they're and Bonnie and Billy are still together, so yay for y'all. Yay, way to go, Bonnie and Billy. <laughs> Alright, so I'm gonna get started on my murder. Oh yes. It's a little bit long, but I gotta tell you, my husband gave me this murder. And nothing says loved love like a spouse giving you a murder to work on. Yeah, especially a spouse that thinks you're a little kooky for even doing a murder podcast. You're exactly right. We so have that conversation. That says a lot. I know. I, like, I think you're crazy, but you should talk about this. But one. you should totally talk about this. Since you're going to talk about murder anyway, here's one for you. Yeah. And the reason he gave it to me was it was in a town that he lived very close to, and his grandparents actually lived there. And he can remember when this happened. It happened in the 80s. Yeah, it's always so much more interesting when you've got that personal connection. To yes, absolutely. So I, I don't know if anybody listening is from that area, but I left the name, the street names in this story in case <laughs> we somebody... We do not protect the innocent here. <laughs> we don't... Well, no. This is not a podcast. We don't protect anybody, to be honest with you. <laughs> so anyway, but we... Um, I left all the names of the streets in there in case people are familiar with the town. But my husband remembers the whole town being on lockdown. And really? Yeah. And even where he, so he was from Nanny Coke, which is maybe 15 minutes away from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, which is, it's the Wilkes-Barre Scranton area. Right. And um, he can remember them being on lockdown. And they were really nervous because his grandmother still lived in Wilkes-Barre. Oh. And everybody had been told to shelter in place and not go outside. Really? Yeah. And wow. they, and his grandfather had died like three months ago. So she was alone. Oh my gosh. So they were really nervous, but um, he had some relatives that lived nearby and I'm sure they either went and got her or they went and stayed with her. Right. But yeah, he can remember um, 
all of it. He can remember being in high school and, and the schools were locked down. Everything was, the whole town, like even where he was 15 minutes away because this guy went on the run and they did not know where he was for a long time. Oh, my goodness. So, that's, anyway, so this, this guy's name is George Banks. All right. George Banks. I know. But not from know. What a Wonderful Life. What a Wonderful, no. Wonderful Life. No, Just no. Wonderful Life. No, stop it. What is it called? No, that was Steve Martin. George Banks when his daughter gets oh, married. Oh, Father of the Bride. Yes. Oh, I thought George Banks was also the one of the bankers. George Bailey. Oh, Bailey. Bailey. Bailey Banks. It's all the freaking... But banker. I was so close because of the bank. Okay. Okay. Anyway. So, George Banks, he was a former prison guard in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, which was not very far from Wilkes-Barre, in 1982. He lived in Wilkes-Barre, and he was a little bit of an oddball. He had some personality traits, and he had definitely been shaped um, by some racial interactions in his youth. Okay. He was a tower guard at the prison, Although he had previously served seven years in prison for attempted armed robbery. How does that happen? <laughs> Back then there were no rules. Oh wow. You could you could hire ex cons. As... Wow, to work in a prison. Oh yeah. How about that? Mm -hmm. Love it. Well he, he was he never got in trouble in prison, so <laughs> Okay. Whatever. So anyway, um he had also served in the U.S. Army briefly, but received a general discharge because oh. he couldn't get along with the guard, uh, the officers. <laughs> so he he might have a little bit of a problem with authority figures. There is a there is a syndrome called oppositional or authoritative oppositional whatever. It's when you are you can't get along with um, people that are in authority or people that you perceive as authority. So. Um, his teachers and guidance counselor from high school described him as a thin boy that wasn't any more trouble than any other boy. Oh, wow. That's he, always trouble. That's really not good. <laughs> but there was a former classmate who was also his street friend and a co-prisoner at the time that he was in prison, not for the same thing, but they actually were in the same, I don't know, cell block or whatever they are in prisons. What is a street friend? Like a somebody street that friend, lives on the same street? Somebody that hung in the streets with you. All right. So they hung together in the streets. So I feel he, like I need a street friend. Well, when you hang in the streets, you'll make one. All right. So, I'll work on it. New yeah. Year's resolution. There you go. Get me a street friend. So um, this guy said that Banks always seemed like he wasn't looking to hurt anyone, but um, if provoked, he was always ready for a fight, and he always felt like there was going to be a fight. So I don't know if there's some paranoia going in there or whatever. So, anyway, Banks had told, in, in the prison, Banks had described the robbery that he, that he was convicted of, saying that he tried to rob a local tavern, and the tavern owner challenged him by saying, you won't shoot me. And so, supposedly, Banks answered, get ready, a big slob, because here it comes, and pulled the trigger. Oh. But he was not, he was convicted of robbery, or attempted armed robbery, so he never got to the money. <laughs> Just the so shooting. He just, he got carried away with the shooting. He was so pissed off at the guy to say, that said, I don't think that you'll shoot me. Oh. So, yeah. So it was a bad game of truth or dare, kind of. It was a little bad, bad game of chicken. Chicken. Yeah. <laughs> so this friend said that in prison, he realized that Banks was a little bit more dangerous than he had ever considered. And um, he said that, that Banks 
always felt persecuted by both Caucasian and African-American races. And the reason is because Banks's mom was Caucasian. Okay. His father was um, African-American. Okay. So he was of mixed race. And this is in the 80s. Right. And um, in, I guess, growing up, his parents never married. And growing up, his mom, um, when he, when they would walk down the street together, people would spit on his mother and call her racial names. <sighs> And, and as a teenager, Banks said that he had a run-in a couple of times with some angry people because, like, one day he said that he was on the corner eating a donut and drinking a Coke. And just these people kind of came up and started a verbal attack on him and called him racial slurs. And then a mob, an angry mob kind of formed, and, and they they were beating on him until the cops came. So he definitely had some, he had grown up with some, definitely some racial persecution, and he did not feel that either race had ever accepted him. Oh, wow. So um, just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Okay. So some other history on George Banks. He had fathered a child from a former, he actually had two grown children by now that were not living with him, and he had divorced, and they were all, they were gone. I don't even know if he had contact with them. But um, he had fathered a child with a former girlfriend, Sharon Mazzillo, and that son's name was Kissamayu. Kissamayu. I don't know. Okay. That's better than kissing my ass, but Kissamayu. <laughs> and um, he and Sharon were in the middle of a custody dispute. She did not live with him. She lived with her son, her mother, two younger brothers, and a nephew that would come and visit. But they did live locally. Um, and so, <laughs> at some point. George collected a few more girlfriends oh, George. and a few more children. Oh, Here's George. the crazy part. All of them lived in the same house. Okay. That's the crazy. That to me is just crazy. So the girlfriends, the kids, the whole. Yeah. I'm going to give you a rundown of who's who in the zoo because it's a zoo. Okay. So he has, um, he lives on, he bought a house on schoolhouse lane. That just seems quaint. so quaint and cute. Yeah. Not really in this house, but um, so Regina Clemens was a girlfriend. She had a six-year-old daughter with him named Montezima. Mont, Mont, no, Monta, Mont, Montana Zima. I don't know. It's a weird name. It's got a lot of letters oh, in wow. there. So, um, and then Regina's names? sister, Susan Uhas, also lived there and had a four-year-old son named Bowendy. With Banks. Bowendy? Bowendy. Okay. And a six-month-old daughter named Mara Tanya. Okay. Mar, Mara Tanya. Is that one, one word? It's all one word, so that makes it hard for me to decipher. And then there's Dorothy Lyons, who also lived there. She had a daughter a daughter from a previous marriage, and then all... And that daughter's name was Nancy. Oh, poor Nancy. I bet everybody picked on her. And then she Nancy. bore a son who at this time is one year, one year old, and his name is Fora Rudy. Fora Rudy? For, I think it's Fora Rudy or Fora Rowdy or Faronda. I don't know. It's something. But in the house, we have three girlfriends all in their 20s. Who is picking the names of the kids? Obviously, he is. Okay. Because Dorothy had Nancy. Oh, that's right. So, so obviously, yeah. and then these people all have just like common names that you would know, but the, I guess George is the one picking these names. It's pretty crazy. So they all live together in this house, three girlfriends, five children, ages 1 to 11. Wow. 
Four of those children had been fathered by Banks, and then one was the little girl, Nancy. This is almost like a sister-wives situation. I know. So here's the crazy thing. All of the wives were Caucasian women. Okay. So he then fathered more mixed children. All of them were mixed because he was mixed. Right. Okay. So just hang on to that. Okay. It's going to come up. Okay. Okay. So the neighbors were not big fans of Mr. Banks. Really? He was frequently seen abusing the children and the women in the yard and on the porch, <sighs> like abusing them, like hitting them, right. um, knocking them down, calling them names. Most neighbors had strained relationships with him or they just stayed away. So more than one neighbor had been told by Banks that he didn't want any white trash in his yard only, and his own people weren't welcome either. Oh. Yeah. So, um... He also said that one day he might clean up the neighborhood and he'd be the only survivor. Oh, wow. So they pretty much just tried to stay away from him. So at work, in the prison, one day he had a dispute with one of his supervisors. And he later was in the guard tower where he worked and he had a gun and he threatened to kill himself. And um, his fellow guards had to talk him down out of the tower and not to kill himself. So he's... He's got a little suicide issue. Wow. He had told some of his co-workers for a while that um, there's going to be a race war and that he was very um, concerned about the fate of his children because they were all mixed and he did not want them to live in a world like he lived in and felt like that they were going to be persecuted in this race war because nobody was going to accept them. Aww. So September... Oh, sorry. Yep. So after he had talked about the race war and then he threatened to commit suicide, they put him on um, medical leave. Okay. And they told him that he needed to go to a mental health clinic. And so he went to the mental health clinic and they decided he was not overtly homicidal or suicidal. So they just made an appointment and told him to come back on September 29th. Okay. And sending home. All right, September 24th, that night. George is at home, and before going to bed, he took a cocktail of prescription drugs and a whole lot of straight gin. Uh-oh. And you know, gin makes you sin. <laughs> so, I can't I can't stand gin because I think it tastes like pine needles and cat pee. But um, lots of people like it. But I do have heard many times from many different people that gin will make you sin. Oh, wow. So, anyway, so... He goes to bed on this cocktail of mind-altering situation. So, from this point forward, I'm not going to t- say his name. Because I decided George, I decided this is it. This is that I don't want to say his name over and over. I've given his introduction, but now, to me, he's either a-hole, monster, or a monster a-hole. All right. Because of what he does. So, I don't want to give him any undue fame, because this is not about... Him. This is about his actions. Okay. Okay. I understand completely. And yeah. I'm completely on board with all of those descriptors. Okay. Asshole, yeah. Monster asshole. He really is. The man is. There's no. There's nothing redeemable about this man. And there, I cannot find an excuse anywhere for what he is getting ready to do. Oh my. So September 25th, he awakes in the morning. His four-year-old son Bowendy is laying next to him. And his three girlfriends each sitting in chairs around his bed. So oh. I have a feeling there was a lot of control going on there. Yeah. And that 
and maybe in his paranoia they had to keep watch. Maybe they slept when he went to work. I don't know. Sounds but almost cult. It sounds like a cult to me yeah. too. So also, um, so each of the girlfriends sat in chairs around his bed, and Susan was holding their one-year-old daughter, Mara Tanya. So next to the monster is an AR-15, which he gets up and... <laughs> he sleeps with his AR-15. Close by. Okay. So he gets out of bed and picks it up and puts a 30-round clip into it. Oh. Okay. And then he very calmly turns around and pulls the trigger and shoots Susan four times in her chest. Oh. Oh, wait. No. First... No, he shoots Regina first. He kills her instantly. Then he shoots Susan four times in the chest. She slumps over, and one of the bullets passes through his um, one-year-old daughter's back ear and kills her instantly. Oh, my gosh. He then shoots Dorothy with two shots, killing her. And then he goes over to his four-year-old son and shoots him in the face, <gasps> killing him. So, one by one, he shoots and kills each of them. And in less than probably 15 minutes, he has wiped out his entire family. But he goes downstairs. Or, no, he goes upstairs. And he proceeds to go to each child's bedroom that's not with them, the older children. Mm -hmm. And he shoots each one of them and kills them. Oh, my gosh. So, he kills every single person in that house but himself. Right. That's why he's a monster. So, then... He steps over all the bodies, goes this up to his... This has a lot of the, the um, same elements, I think, as the story behind the Amityville Horror House, yeah. right? When yeah. that guy comes in and kills his whole family with an axe. Yes. Yeah. So, he goes to his bedroom and puts on military fatigues and a t-shirt that reads, Kill them all and let God sort them out. So, this is going to set the tone. Wow. So he isn't done. He walks out of his house and across the street, there are two men who are jumping, trying to jump into a car. James Olson, 22, and Ray Hall Jr., 24, had heard the gunshots. From, and they're, they're like, we got to get out of here. And they said, we got to get out of here. And so they knew the gunshots were coming from across the street. And so they, Jimmy grabs the keys and they go to, they're running out to the car. And when, a-hole sees them. He runs over and tells them, you won't live to tell about this, and shoots them both in the chest. Oh, my gosh. He stands over them briefly to make sure they're dead. Wow. And then he takes off. So he gets in his car. He drives about four miles to a nearby um, mobile home park where his girlfriend, ex-girlfriend Sharon lived. So Sharon, um, she's there. She lives with her mother, her two younger brothers, and there's a nephew that comes and stays with them and visits and then goes back. Like, he kind of bounces back and forth. So, um, when she sees him coming to the door, she's very cautious about what he's doing there unannounced. Because, remember, they're in a bitter custody battle. Right. And then she sees that he's armed. And so, she tries to close the door and keep him from coming in. And he overpowers her. And immediately shoots her with the AR-15 and kills her, instantly kills her. He steps over her lifeless body and sees his son, Kissamayu, sleeping on the couch with the blanket covering him. He walks over and holds the barrel inches from that child's head and pulls the trigger. Oh, my gosh. It's just. What? Yeah. When is it going to stop? 
Meanwhile, Sharon's mother, Alice, has heard the commotion and is desperately trying to dial the phone for help. Um, and her younger sons, 10-year-old Angelo and 13-year-old Keith, are trying to find a place to hide. So Angelo scoots under Alice's bed, and then Keith goes and hides in her closet. The monster walks into the room and grabs Alice. He places the barrel of the gun facing upward against her nose and pulls the trigger, and her head explodes. Oh, gosh. It sends brain tissue and blood all over the room, and poor Keith has watched this from the closet. Whoa. And poor um, Angelo was under her bed. So he sees the carnage as well. And you know they're terrified. Of course. So in the meantime, um, the nephew comes running in. His name is Scott. He comes running in to see what the stuff, what's going on, and he sees his grandmother's decapitated body <gasps> and runs down the hall screaming. Well, George very quickly reaches him, grabs him up by the shoulder, holds the AR-15 against the kid's stomach, and just unloads, oh and then just drops him like a rag doll. Like, this, there's no emotion here. It's just methodical. I'm going to wipe them all out. So as he does that, he exclaims, well, I killed them all. And he, he walks out. Oh, my god! Leaves gosh. everybody dead. So a call goes out to police in the area of the, the um, trailer park to investigate a possible shooting. A possible shooting. So um, there's a police officer who arrives at the lot where Regina and Alice reside and he um, sees the body of Regina laying on the ground and she's dead. So he walks into the house and flicks on his flashlight. Cause I think it's, um, I think it's, it's getting to be dark and he sees the carnage of all these dead bodies, but Keith and Angelo run out from hiding. <gasps> they had survived. Oh, wow! They're able to tell him, Tell the police officer um, who did it, what he looks like, and and that he left on foot and he's the, and that he's armed. Right. So they immediately call for backup, and then they you know they put they get more cops there to secure the scene. And in the meantime, another separate call has gone out to the schoolhouse lane neighborhood, and a cop goes over there to. Um, because somebody had reported a body in the street. So that's the two oh, the guys, guys that, that he, yeah. Away. So right. the cop goes in over there and sees the, the two bodies and he's trying to figure out what happened. So he's like, okay, I'm just going to walk across the street and canvas the neighbors to see if they saw what happened. And when he gets across the street, you know, to the monster's house, he opens the door and smells fresh gunpowder. Hmm. And he flicks on his flashlight and there's carnage. Oh, yeah. And he absolutely cannot, he can't even count the bodies. Oh, my God. So he goes outside, radios for backup. When his backup gets there, he said, we have a homicide. And the other cop says, how many? And he said, I lost count. Oh, my God. I can't tell how many people, I can't tell how many people are in there. There's just so much carnage. Mm-hmm. It's awful. So, um, in the meantime... Okay, well, let me tell you about the two guys in the street. So the two guys in the street get loaded. EMS gets there. They load them up into the car. They're both still alive. Okay. They go to the nearby hospital where, um, let's see. 
where Ray Hall is pronounced dead at the hospital. But James Olson is flown to a nearby um, trauma center in Danville, which I've been to that hospital before. They it's, have? Mm-hmm. It's Geisinger. It's where my niece was born. Remember, she was a preemie. Oh, right. Yeah, it's a really great hospital. So he, he goes there, and he ends up surviving this. Really? Yeah, he does. So in the meantime, the a-hole becomes aware that there's a huge manhunt for him. And so he goes over, he ditches his car, and then armed carjacks another car from a passing motorist. He told that motorist, I've killed everybody. I'm a wanted man. Do you want to stay in the car or not? And the guy says, no, I'd like to get out. So he lets him out. Thank God. Oh, my gosh. I know. So um, around, so then he drives the car to the edge of town, walks into a field, lays down, and passes out. Falls From asleep. all the gin and drugs. Gin and drugs. And I guess, I mean, I'm, I know an AR-15 is an, is an automatic weapon, but it must just be exhausting killing and wiping out your entire family. Oh, yeah. Poor, poor baby. So it needs a little nappy. Poor jackass. Yeah. So around 5.30 a.m., he awakes and hears sirens all around him and immediately runs on foot to his mother's house on Metcalf Street. Oh, I'll bet she'll be delighted to see him. Actually, she's very happy to see him. Oh, when his mother opens the door, she said she could smell liquor on him and he was crying. Okay. Yeah. And he said if she doesn't take him where he wants to go, there will be a shootout right then and there and she will be hurt. So she says, well, what's wrong? Why are they looking for you? And he just said, well, I've killed everyone. And she said, who is everyone? And he said, I've killed all the girls, Regina, Sharon, all of them. So, in a state of shock, his mother, Mary, sits down at the kitchen table and starts to write out her will. Oh, Lord. She says this is it. So, she finally decides to call the house on Schoolhouse Lane, or call the phone on Schoolhouse Lane to see if anybody answers. And an officer answered. And then she's like, oh, God, I think this might be real. And then the asshole gets on the phone and identifies himself to the cop and says, how are my kids? What? Yeah. The officer on the phone says, they're good. They're okay. (gasps) What? But they need your blood because they're all very, they're very hurt. Can you meet us at the hospital and donate blood? Oh, what a brilliant, brilliant man. It's a lie, but they're hoping that this guy feels like, okay, I got to go give blood to save my children. Oh my God, that gave me chills. I know. I mean, they actually did a fake news story on the news. Wow. Saying that, that the children were more, were all in critical condition and they needed blood donations and that they're hoping that their father, who would be the perfect match, and that would, because they're a blood relative, it would be the quickest way for them to give them blood. So they actually put it on the news that the I children, have yeah, I have they're trying desperately to get this man because he is running loose and they know. Right. He's armed, he's dangerous, and, and he's he doesn't care. He's got nothing to lose and he doesn't care who he hurts. Right. So um, George doesn't believe them and he grabs a whole bunch of ammo that I guess he stored at his mom's house, which it's of course, so I mean, what, that's what your mother's house is for when you get older <laughs> to store your crap. So he then instructs his mother to drive him to a a rental home that he knows is currently vacant on Monroe Street. So she did what all heaven-sent moms would do and drove him to where he wanted to go. Of course. Dropped him off. There you go, buddy. Upon her return to home. Yeah. Here, let me pack you a lunch. She um, is met by a flock of police officers at her house by now. No doubt. Okay. 
and it takes them hours to get her to tell them where he was. <gasps> oh yeah, so she's she's no better than he is. Yeah. So now it's 7:20 a.m. the next day. They've been tracking this man. The whole town is under siege. It is please lock your doors, do not go outside and do not answer the door for anybody. Right. Just Shelter. Shelter. Get under a bed. Get in a closet. There is a human storm coming through. Can you imagine? It's. I I mean, these people must have felt like it was the end of the world. I I would have been beside myself. Me too. I would have been terrified. And then lock yourself in. But, oh, my gosh, my daughter is at work. What do I do? Like, what do you do in those situations? You can't get to people. Yeah, that's what happened to us, you know, for 9-11. We were desperate to get to our loved ones and couldn't get there. So, I mean, I, this is so terrifying. And my husband remembers the news reports. He remembers the lockdown at schools. He remembers things being canceled, like wow. it, everything. But like the, it was like a ghost town in Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Nanny Coke, all of these surrounding towns because they didn't know where he was. Right. So when they finally figure out he's at this vacant house on Monroe Street, of course, 110 officers show up. And they try to talk him into coming out. And, of course, they try to tell him that his kids need him and all this stuff. But they finally, um, it took them four hours to finally get him to come out and surrender. So, and it makes me mad because as a, as a parent, I would, I don't understand why they just can't shoot and kill him. They know he's done it. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's my thing, too. Why are we negotiating at this point? There's nobody inside the house. Just so, firebomb it. Right. But I do think there are people that feel like criminals need to They, I guess punished. they need to be punished. Right. That's true. He's got to have his day in court. So, speaking of day in court, June 1983, a trial begins. After a, a three-month-long court hearing and ruling as to whether or not the man was mentally competent enough to stand trial. They finally agree in June he can stand trial. So they they go on trial. And against the advice of his attorneys, this dumbass decides I'm going to testify because he has now pleaded guilty. I mean, not guilty. Oh, really? He he said, I'm not guilty. I didn't didn't do that. So he said that the police had actually killed nine of his 13 victims. He only shot four people. The police killed everybody else. So he only shot, what, the four that the two boys can identify? And the... He's probably saying I only shot the... He's probably saying I only shot the women. I didn't shoot my kids. Wow. That's what... And he claims that the police shot everybody else because it was a conspiracy against him. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, eventually the trial is over and he is found guilty and given 12 death sentences and one life sentence. Well, that makes me happy. Well, it shouldn't because it's not over. Damn it. Nope. What? November of 19. How can it not be over? It's not over, sugar. It's not over. Hold on to your girdle. Uh, well, I'm going to get it right now. <laughs> hold on to it. Hold on to your life. girdle. Myrtle. Myrtle. November 1985. All of his appeals are exhausted and his death warrant is finally signed by the governor. Governor. But there's more. Go, governor. 1987, February. I don't know what we're doing between November of 85 and February of 87, but he ain't he ain't been executed. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, people sit. I guess. So the state supreme, no, 
There's a third. Okay, so it goes to the state Supreme Court, and they uphold the verdict, okay? But somehow there's a third circuit court back in Pennsylvania that decides in October of 2001. Now, we're still fa fancy footing around. I don't know what we're doing. This man is just sitting there rotting. And after a lot of hoopla in the state and federal courts, this court reverses the death sentences, sentences due to some kind of a wording given to the jury. But it goes back to the state Supreme Court, and they said, uh-uh, take another look. You're wrong. Okay. All right. So, finally, circuit court up, upholds the death penalty. Okay? okay? At one point, there's another order that goes through to force feed the asshole because now he is on a hunger strike and has gone 16 days without eating or drinking. Who gives a crap? That is saving the taxpayers money. Exactly. You want to you're on death row and you want to go on a hunger strike? Let me let me eat a hamburger in front of you. Right. So anyway, so they they finally get him back to eating. I mean, I think he's just he's a drama queen. So anyway, October 2004, another death warrant is finally signed. Okay. Finally. But wait. No, no. Nope, I'm, I'm telling you. December 1st, 2004, the state Supreme Court halts the execution due to the diminished mental state of the prisoner. Are you kidding me? It seems that we have some kind of a rule that says, even if you were mentally competent to stand trial, if you're not mentally healthy, we can't kill you. Are you serious? I'm not kidding. I'm. It's just awful. We need an express lane for executions, right. not... Like, let's don't think about it. Let's just do yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, he stood trial. Right. The decision was made. And let's just pretend that... Let's just pretend in his wacky-ass mind that somehow the police really did execute nine of his victims and he only he only killed four that would still be four death sentences right. let's go get it done right you can only kill him once right but no you have to be mentally stable for us to put you in the execution chamber it's it's unbelievable that is unbelievable so anyway as of january 4th 2018 this maniacal deranged asshole is still alive Are and still exists what? What? On death row. Are you kidding me? I have not found... I searched everywhere. I have not found a single death notice on him. So he I assume still? he's still alive and he's 77 years <gasps> old. And he has never, ever been executed for his crimes. Now that... That is insane. It's a kicker. It's a kicker right in the gut. Whoa. Yeah. So, I'm. you know, what an asshole. Oh my gosh. I, there's so many wrong things. So many wrong things. There's so many wrong things. But what can you do? I mean, I'm, I'm sure life isn't great for him on death row. But if you're on death row, you you are segregated from the rest of the population. Right. So ain't nobody going to shank him. No. And a lot of times these the prisoners end up, you know, they've got a relationship. Not they've romantic, got a, a rapport. They have a rapport with the guards and yeah. the medical personnel and the warden. And, yeah. you know, it's. I For just wish it's not a whatever life. jail Jeffrey Epstein went to, perhaps this guy could go there too. And Maybe. just like for a little visit. Yeah. Do you know where he is? What jail he's in? I, I tried to find out, but okay. I couldn't find it. Yeah. I'm sure if I dug really, 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 really deep, I could. But I just, 
Yeah, I know. I you wanted to get it, it. done because it's yeah. such a terrible... It was very heavy to do, and, and the outcome is such a letdown. I wonder what his mental issue is. Well, I'm sure at this point he still thinks that there's a... He probably thinks there's a race war still going on. Oh. And he's got, you know, he's got these conspiracy theories about the cops right. and the race and everything. So, but I mean, I'm sorry, but I don't care. I'm, I, we're not saying he wasn't, I mean, he was not of diminished capacity when he stood trial. Right. He wasn't of diminished capacity when he shot these people. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And he, you know, okay, let's just go out on a limb and say, I wake up one morning, I'm, I'm fucked up in my head and I kill my whole entire family. Because he but, had taken a bottle of pills and But then to gin. have the wherewithal to go outside and kill your two possible witnesses. Right. Get in the car, drive four miles down to another home, go in there and methodically kill each one of those people. Right. And he thought he had killed all of them. Like, that's not diminished capacity. Right. Sorry, right. it's not. Right. And I'm sorry if he sat on death row and didn't get the proper nutrition and his brain rotted a little bit. Why is that our problem? I agree. It's just, agree it's really, it's, it's the just taxpayer a, money is what funds the prison. So now those yeah. poor kids that survived, the victims that survived and, and have had to deal with it. all the crap. The PTSD are that the those ones kids that are now must have. basically paying for this man's yeah, care. Yeah, absolutely. It's awful. Yeah, it really is. And so, this is probably why my husband told me to do this, not just because he was connected to the story personally because it where where he lived. Right. I think he's trying to say, see, not all of these have that relief at the end, so maybe you shouldn't do this anymore. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking maybe there was some type of a hidden agenda oh. because this is a very depressing I mean, they're all depressing because it has to do with murder. Sure. But I always like it when we get to the end and it's like justice is served and right. the gavel drops and it, you know everybody can go finally there's none of that here you know he seems to have really found some loopholes along the way and yeah is still plugging along out there yeah it's it's disappointing it is, so it is very disappointing so there you go follow la 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 for me holidays. i know wow. i agree well, i tell you what um i'm still kind of working with these cookies but um, there is one it you can taste. It smells good. Oh, shut your mouth. Um, it's warm. I like a warm. Um, I think the first batch, maybe I didn't put enough of the almond filling. So with these cookies, you make a oh dough. God. And then you make another dough. Um, the first dough is just like an almond extract, sugar, flour, egg, a little bit of milk, and butter. Mm -hmm. The second dough is um, your almond paste, a little bit of eggs and sugar little bit of milk and you take the first dough and you roll it in a big ball and then the second dough you take like a little almost a tablespoon but not quite a tablespoon you roll that into a ball put it in the center uh, you flatten the first ball drop the second dough into the center of that first ball that's been flattened then you pinch it around make a new ball Oh. Put it on the pan, flatten it with your hand, mm. and you cook it. So it's supposed to have that almond paste center. Oh. I'm not quite sure. Are these I... the ones that you think you messed up? Uh-huh. Oh, Lord. Oh. <laughs> I don't feel that way at all. These are fantastic. So, well, uh, yeah, I think they're pretty good, but, like, mm. I mean, they're not exactly like the ones we get from Fresh Market. Okay. But um, they are very flavorful and delicious. No, very good. I can't wait to taste the ones you think aren't messed up. I don't know. You know what's a new recipe? I, you know, i never seen it before. 
No, it's See, good. You just never know how something like this is going to. And turn that's out why I'm here, sugar. Yes, to tell you. I will tell you if it's not good. You cannot. You cannot put that out in the public. I shall. I shall take this off your hands. <laughs> so okay. Well, you keep on going, and um, you can start talking about your murder soon. Okay, I'll, I'll talk about my murder. North Carolina border in southeastern Virginia called Franklin. Franklin, Virginia. I know you know that, but our listeners may not. <laughs> and um, it was tiny, tiny, tiny little southern town. So I think it had, when we were growing up, maybe... Um, I think I read some statistics on it that maybe 8,000 people. Right. Maybe. Yeah. And this was back in the 80s. So mm -hmm. um, when it was thriving because it was a paper mill town. So there were a lot of people there working at the paper mill and um, a lot of executives. And, of course, the family that started the paper mill lived there. So, Oh, yeah. Royalty. Um, yeah. Small town royalty. Yeah. I mean, as a matter of fact, we actually had Elizabeth Taylor come and stay with one of the families that we knew. And we went to church with her. I yes, we did. She was not nice. With Elizabeth Taylor. Well, she was it's when drunk. she was with, yes, it's when she was with um, Warner. Yeah. She was drunk. She was at, very at church. drunk. <laughs> but that's okay. She was lovely. Okay. Pretty. Not personality-wise, but she was pretty. She was strong. She was strong. Yeah. So, anyway, small town, USA. And we had a woman that lived in town. And our dad owned a drugstore, um, a small little drugstore in the center of town. So, we got to see a lot of the people that lived in town um, that we didn't necessarily know from social circles, but people who were customers of our dad's. Mm -hmm. And this woman, um, they called her Cy. Her last name was Davis. You always knew she was coming because she would drive a convertible Corvette decked out in and red skins. Red. Cherry red, red Corvette. Red skins, everything. She was a huge Redskins fan. Yes, we were born and raised in Redskins territory, mm -hmm. which is why I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan today. <laughs> <laughs> and she wore skirts that were perhaps a little too short for her age. <laughs> she, I remember her. I went to school with her granddaughter. Um Maybe some go-go boot type. Yeah, she definitely layer. had those go-go boots yeah. on. I remember that. And her, she had skinny legs. Very skinny legs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and she, she did like a short skirt. Yeah. We're talking about a woman in her yeah. 80s right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. So. Um, she was quite the character. So I took on a lover. Of course she, she did. did. She Who else? On, she what else do you do at that age when you can wear, still sport a mini skirt and go-go boots? Right. Who was considerably younger than she was. Um, he was in his 60s early 60s in that mm. um and of course she was in her 80s and that's nice they had i mean doesn't there come a point where age just is a number i mean evidently <laughs> evidently in this world yes as a matter okay. of fact, it does i mean there is a point i don't know what point that is but there is a point i think where age is just a number right so her boyfriend was not from our town, and coming from a small town, it's not easy to fit in necessarily when you're an outsider, where um, we have, you know, our thing, at, and growing up, our parents, our grandparents, the first question when you introduced somebody to them was, who are your people? Yes. They wanted to know who you were related to so who they could figure people? out what family you come from so they could determine if you're worthy enough 
for a handshake. Yes. Or a stand up. Mm-hmm. So this fella did not come from our town. And I used to hear, now, who does who does he belong to? Who does he belong to? Mm-hmm. Right. Who are your people? But um, and our grandmother always said it's it's all in who you know. It's all about who you know. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, Sai so had her little relationship going in, and I remember I remember her house as like a an older house on the outskirts of town, but on the right side of the railroad tracks, not on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. Oh, them damn railroad tracks. <laughs> really them damn railroad tracks. It's just, <laughs> it, you can't make this stuff up. You really can't. Well, um, unfortunately, Sai's boyfriend was a raging alcoholic. Raging alcoholic. So he fit right in. Right. So, and <laughs> they liked to party, no question. You know, that tailgating, that's a lot of fun. But. That is, and I can remember tailgating out in a field when there was no um, athletic event going on. Right. <laughs> My whole life growing up was a tailgating. Right. And now Cy was related to the former sheriff in town. That was her son-in-law. Her son-in-law. Her daughter's husband. Yes. Right. But she also was the, she was the granddaughter of the first mayor of Franklin. She certainly was. So she definitely came from. She had long, long she was, roots. Yeah. She, her, her family was steeped in the history of that town. Absolutely. So, you know, she even though she was a little bit of a character, she was still a very well-respected woman in the community. Yes. Um, and, you know, now she's got this connection where her son-in-law, Grady, is um, the former police chief in town. Yep. Got pulled over from him by him one day. Oh. Twice. Did you get a ticket? The first time, no. I was on the way. I was running late. I was in high school, and I was in our big purple station wagon. Right. <laughs> the one with the seat the way back yeah, the, that you, that you that rode used backwards to, in. Yeah, used to. How did we ever live through that? I don't that even know. Wagon? Because the first station wagon we had had no back seat, and we laid down in the back all the yes, time. And there did. was a hole. There was a hole in that back seat, or the, the floor of that back, whatever it was, compartment. And you could watch the road go by in that hole. So, yeah. that I mean, mesmerizing. So, it's how you fell asleep in that long trip. Exactly. So, of course, I mean, our mama moved in a station. And that's old, old station. I want the paneling on it. When she was pregnant with me and they moved to the eastern shore, she laid down in the back of that station wagon to get to the eastern shore because she was on bed rest. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, that station wagon was along. We had that for a long time, and then we upgraded to this very fancy purple, it looked like Barney, station wagon that had three seats in it. It was a novel idea for a family of five that toted everybody else's kids around, too. It was not purple. Well, well, it was, it was burgundy. It was a, like a maroon purple. It was burgundy, and then Sugar? the children waxed it. And, then and it the turned faded, purple. Right. The color faded, just like what happened when we had the same color Volvo. Oh, years yeah. later. Yeah, that's I waxed what, it one day yeah, for I, what dad. Were you, were you putting like floor wax on it? What the that hell? I don't even know. was car wax, but then I tried to rinse it off and it sat or whatever. and sat too when long. We went to take it off. The color came off of it. And yeah, it was beautiful. Daddy was like, Ann Varner. So anyway. Um, so you got pulled over by Grady. Grady, yeah. On the way to school one day, I was actually on the way to my friend Laura's house before school because my cheerleading skirt was at her house. Mm-hmm. And we had to wear a cheerleading outfit. So he pulled me. And before I even got to school, he had told Daddy. He oh, had God. driven straight to the to the pharmacy, walked in and said, I, Harry, I pulled over your 
your daughter, your older daughter today. She was, she, you got to tell her slow He probably down. didn't even have to say older because daddy wouldn't know. Yeah, he probably just said, I pulled your girl over. And right. daddy was like, that yeah. Karen Devaney, oh <laughs> my God. So anyway, and then I, um, years later in college, I might have been, yeah, because I was driving my Buick, that old Buick Skylark oh, I right. had. And I was riding through town. It's right when the seatbelt laws came out. Right. And I didn't have no seatbelt on. Uh-oh. So he pulled me. I was going 32 and a 25. So he didn't give me a ticket for speeding, but he gave me a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt. Really? Yes. 25 <gasps> bucks. Wow. I was so mad. I bet. Yeah. I, I bet you and were really mad. And both times, it was Grady. It wasn't even one of his employees. It was like, I'm being pulled over by the police chief himself. And I bet you were especially mad because you can normally talk your way out of stuff I couldn't like talk out my way out of that one. Mm-mm. That probably was after we had the party that he came to oh, our God. house that he had to help that us. That he had to help us vacate the premises of all the unknown party goers. Exactly. So, all right. Yeah. So we're going to get back to this little tale of Miss Sai Davis. So Sai and her boyfriend are together for a while. And after so many years, the relationship was less romantic and more roommate I guess you could call. And the boyfriend really got bad with his alcoholism and um he and Sai would get into some scuffles oh gosh um well one day um Sai gave a call to her son-in-law grady and said who was retired by who was retired by this time and said i I think you need to come to my house something's wrong Something is not right. I just can't put my finger on it. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) And uh, Grady and his wife jump in their car and drive over. Now, Franklin is tiny. It probably took them less than five minutes. I actually think they lived on the same street. They may have. Yeah. They may have. So, Grady jumps in his vehicle and drives over. And he says, uh, what's going on? And she said, I think you need to go upstairs and look in that bedroom. So, she... she, uh, takes Grady in, and there's the boyfriend is in bed, and he is covered in bruises. And he's barely conscious. And he's bloody. And he's bloody, yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, oh, by the way, downstairs in the kitchen, there's a lot of blood. There's blood in the kitchen. Which immediately, any good daughter is going to start cleaning that stuff up, because which somebody is, done bled in the kitchen. She started cleaning some clean stuff up, up my right? Mama. And then um, Grady said, I think you ought to call 911. And he went over to the boyfriend and it says, it looks like you've taken a tumble. <laughs> you've had quite a spill. You've had a spill. And you friend. spilled all the way upstairs into your bed. <laughs> right. So the EMS workers get there and um, they come in and they're, they are working on this boyfriend a little bit. And they load him up and, and take him out and um, they leave and take this fellow to the hospital. And this fellow dies from... Blunt force trauma to the head. He also had a heart attack. Or, no, I think Sa said she thought he had had a heart attack. Right. That's and what, fallen. Yes, that he had fallen, had a heart attack, but no. no. <laughs> that's what she said. Right. So That's why it didn't seem right. It did not seem right. And um, there was, so you remember Grady's retired, and there may have been a some speculation in town that maybe Grady was a little less than honest. Okay. So, um, in his workings when he was a police officer that maybe he had not been truthful in his job. 
That was so, the speculation. That was the speculation. Never so proven. So there were those in an authoritative, authoritative position that felt like he wasn't trustworthy enough to maybe give them a description of the scene. So they did send people in to take pictures of the scene um, because they weren't really sure what happens. And you got to investigate if somebody comes in and they're dying of blunt force trauma. Cause they're like, yeah. what the hell? Well, it, um, it turns out that they believe Cy had beaten this man with a baseball bat that they had had an argument. I mean, it happens. <laughs> right. Um, there are, uh, there's a lot of speculation about Cy. She was not a big woman. She was, she was little, you know, she's, I think her, she weighed 97 pounds right? or something like and she was a tiny woman. She was little at 80 and she was in her eighties at this point. And, um, there were people who said, there's no way. How could she, Oh, you know, listen, your dog trout wants in on the podcast. <laughs> What a shocker. What a Christmas miracle. I know. I think he's, um, I don't even know what he's thinking. I don't know what he's thinking. He got vaccines yesterday and he 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 doesn't feel real good. He doesn't do well with vaccines and poor little guy. Bless his heart. I'm I'm actually going to go easy on him today because he he got him, he got what my daughter used to call a blood shot. He did. He got a blood shot. (laughs) He got a blood shot and he don't feel real good. Exactly. I'm going to let him, I'm going to ease up on him today. So I remember when this whole thing happened with Cy Davis and her getting arrested and everybody's like, oh my God, what are you talking about? And it was the talk of the town. Um, they they did their investigation and they determined that, that Cy had in fact killed this boyfriend um, and they went to trial. And while they were at the trial, they pulled one of the EMS workers up on the stand and they showed him some of the pictures from the scene uh, where he had come in and taken the boyfriend to the hospital. And he's looking at pictures and he's saying, these are not, this is not what that scene looked like. But something's wrong with this. So the, the difference was when they got to the bedroom to work on this man, who I don't know his name and that's a horrible thing because he's the victim. But... When they got to him and worked on him, um, you know, they, he remembers the scene a certain way, but the, the pictures of what the text took from the police, the police officers, those pictures from the crime scene, um, it was littered with empty booze bottles exactly. and they were everywhere. They were around the bed. Right. They were up on the dresser. They were, they covered every surface. Right. And this guy said, I would have remembered if I had had to step over glass bottles. Right. And I didn't. Right. So he, his, his remembrance of the scene was completely different than the pictures. And so the speculation was that they were, they were trying to, and they, and she had said the whole time he, he was a heavy drinker, and he had a heart attack, and he fell, and at some point, he got himself back up in bed, and when I went to check on him, he seemed like he was not doing well. Right. So, um, and so there was some speculation that perhaps the retired police chief had had a hand in rearranging some things at the scene. Plus, the, you know, blood that was tone. in the kitchen had been cleaned up, but they did find some traces of that blood um, yeah. 
In the kitchen. Yes. And I remember it took them a long time. And she time said he, had, he had had a nosebleed. Right. And she had had a nose, like she said, I get nosebleeds. And he had had a nosebleed when he fell yeah. from his heart attack. So yeah, we were all just standing around bleeding from our nose. In the yeah, kitchen that's what we do. On Saturday afternoon. And um, yeah, it's it was, good. It's yeah, good. It was we pretty crazy. Some, it was. And it took them a really long time to go to trial. Um, and eventually they did find her guilty. Now, they arrested her, but she did not stay in jail she because did not. she was the oldest person at that point that they had arrested. And a woman. And a boot. woman. Right. And they did not feel comfortable putting some an elderly woman that weighed 97 pounds in jail. Right. They just said, "There's we can't do it. So she stayed at her house for the trial, and she had free range. Like At that point, she was still getting up every day and going. She had a routine right. that she would go to the post office and to the market and to the bank every single day. Yeah. People still saw her out and about, and she was you know, saying, I can't believe that they're doing this to me. Do I look like somebody that could beat somebody to death? Right, and she really was a frail old woman. And Well, she know. was, but she wasn't because she got around just fine, well, and she, she did like to party, and she danced. She, you know, she was... She definitely played... The victim. She she played it up, and I think, and we, and I think all of us were in disbelief, right? And I, we we had um, People Magazine came in and did an article, and did a on whole her. article, yeah. And I think that's the first time our town had ever been in like a national publication, yeah. especially for something like this, exactly. And um, she, you know, there she's quoted in an article like, "Look at me, I'm I'm so small and weak," and that's not really the personality I remember. No, she had Davis. a personality that was larger in life, and she got around just she, fine. Just fine. She drove that car all the time. She did her own grocery shopping. She did her own errands and banking. And I, I remember her as being a very vital personality and a just a strong woman. Right. Just, people used to marvel at the fact that she was eighty and still carrying on like she was carrying right. on. So, and they didn't really know what to do with her once she was found guilty of the crime. They didn't know what to do with her, and they certainly were not going to put her in jail. Well, and there, this actually went all the way to the state Supreme Court because they were trying to figure out what to do with her because even in the prison system of Virginia, they had never incarcerated a female that old, and they absolutely did not feel like they could house her and give her the health care that she needed her and put her in a population right. of people that were as frail as her, mm -hmm. and they didn't think that she was going to survive in jail. Right. So she ended up getting three months, I think it was, three three months of house arrest? Or was it longer than that? It was less than a year. Yeah, I, it was either arrest. three months or six months yeah. of on house arrest. Yeah. Where she had to be she in She just had house. to wear an ankle monitor. Yeah. She could still get out some, but um, she had to wear an ankle monitor. But And then um, after that, she was free. Free as a bird. Right. She didn't. She passed away, I think, in her late 80s. Yeah, she didn't live... Maybe she, a year, maybe yeah, after I took that. a lot out of her, but there is a conspiracy theory, I guess, out there that says that, you know, maybe she was too frail and she couldn't have done the kind of damage that had been done to this man. Um, but then who could? Well, they're thinking maybe Grady did it. Well, but that, and that was never, and, and it was that never. He had her take yeah. the fall for it because he knew the, she wouldn't go to jail. Right. I think the biggest problem was there was so, I mean, we were in a small town and it was a very gossipy town, by the way. 
And I think there was a lot of public speculation of so many angles, but I think it was really difficult on the police officers because this man used to be their boss. Right. And he was highly respected by the men that worked for him. And so that speculation, it was just speculation. Nobody really followed up on investigating if, if he had any hand in that or not. Right. So, you know, I think that, I just think that. Actually, I want to say what happened when she took an Alford plea. She did take an Alfred plea. She took an Alfred she plea. She said there's enough evidence that if we went to trial, that way that they kept her up. But it took forever for them to get to. I want to say it was close to three years before it yes. ever came to a conclusion. And you also have to remember, at the time, Franklin was not a city. It was still a town. Yes. So there was no courthouse in that town any kind of crime or court case went to the county court right. which was in Cortland Virginia you know just 15 yeah, minutes away so the away. crazy thing is the city of the town of Franklin was the like the town seat of the was the main hub right except for the courts and the courts were in Cortland in Southampton County which Franklin's in that county, but normally it's like everything's in the in the hub, in the town seat, and it, it was kind of jumbled around a little bit. So it, it, it's, you know, it, I don't know. I, I think that there was just a lot. There's a lot of mystery and play in it, and it was, we were, I mean, it was the talk of the town for years. Right. And there was a lot of speculation and a lot of conspiracy theories, but nothing was ever proven, and so I think once she took that plea, then they were at the point where, okay, what do we do with her? Right, now what? And so, and at that point, her health was not great. Right. And so now she's, you know, her health is diminishing and they are not going to put her in a prison. No. So then it becomes, okay, now what do we do with her? And how long can you put this woman on house arrest in Franklin, Virginia? Right. You know, so I think it, at that point, being on house arrest was almost like a redundancy because I think it, it by then she her health had declined enough that she re- probably wasn't doing a whole lot for herself anyway by then. No, I don't think so. I think that her her daughter and, and Grady looked after her and, and her grandchildren, grandchildren. I know were very close to her and looked after right, her. Took so. things in for her and yeah, and it was but it was really the first time. Um, I, we were in college at the time when it happened. But it was the first time I can remember. I know that there were murders in that town because I can remember um, a few that impacted the town that we'll talk about later. But um, and I mean in other podcasts later because stay tuned for such a small town. There seemed to be an awful lot of murders. We get a in lot of information <laughs> from our town that we lived yes. in before. So that, that was really in. interesting. I yeah. thought that story was an interesting story. They to, are interesting, and there are articles. I mean, the New York Times even did an article on her. Yeah, during this, they did. It was, this was a really big deal because big of deal. her age. Because of her age. So mm-hmm. and, and we, the court system. We couldn't may never figure really out what know what happened in that house. Well, I mean, I think there's two people that know. Of course. That's right. And they're it's, both dead. It's the victim and whoever made him a victim. Right. That's true. That's so, very true. So I don't, you know, I don't think so. But that's a good one, Sugar. That's Thank a, you. That's a, that's a true hometown murder for us because. So would you like to try an almond cookie? They're warm out of the oven. I would love to. And this is from the batch that you say is better. I think this is a better batch. Mm, God, I love it when they're warm. Yeah. Oh, you not You just, you knock it out of the park by uh, giving me a warm treat. <laughs> so hold on. Let I me, try. let me get this. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. one thing mm-hmm. that we'll never 
be a shortage of talking about is true crime. Because just this <clears throat> week alone, Or food. Or food, right. <laughs> just this week alone, there was that case that came out of that woman. I, I want to say she was in Texas that disappeared with her newborn. Did you see that one? No. And, um, you know, they had a, the, the not an Amber Alert out, but a missing persons mm-hmm. alert out because she had dropped her six-year-old son off at school and then disappeared. She had a three-week-old baby. No. And this week they found the mother's body. And they found the baby alive, living with somebody in a house close by. And this woman was actually a really good friend of the woman who was murdered. Um, I don't know all the details. We'll have to maybe do that one for our podcast when we found out all of the information. The baby is perfectly healthy, had been well cared for. But, yeah, this was a friend of hers who was at the hospital when she gave birth. And they think she murdered her. Yeah. Oh, that's so awful. They do. They think that she murdered her and... um, Told people that she had had a baby. Oh, my God. People are crazy. I know. So, we'll do that one. Yep. No, what'd you think of that cookie? Oh, sugar. It's so good. We're going to sign off now because I'm going to eat about five more of these cookies. <laughs> so, I want everybody out there to stay sweet. And y'all have a great week. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.